calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hi, I'm Jason Voss of CFA Institute. I'm a content director here. And today's guest is Kent Osmond. He's going to be joining us for a Take 15 interview in which we discuss what I feel are some very, very interesting topics. Just so you know who Kent is, he received his BA at Harvard and graduated, I believe, magna cum laude. And he has his PhD in economics from the University of California, Berkeley. In addition, he is taught at Harvard University and UCLA. He's had a 20-plus year career in the investment business, including stints at the IMF, Credit Suisse First Boston, Fortress Investment Group, and more recently, Risk Tick LLC. Today, we're going to be talking about two of his books in particular, which I think do a very nice job of bridging a very difficult divide to bridge. That is, to talk about the difficult quantitative finance um, in layman's terms, yet maintain the analytical rigor that so many quantitative finance professionals prefer. Kent, welcome. Thank you. You bet. So for the first question, I want to ask you about the difference between uncertainty and risk. Now, our audience is somewhat sophisticated, so you could probably risk a deep dive, dare I say, into that topic if you'd like. Well, I would think of, of, think of probabilities as having two layers. Like think of a game in which the objective risk is the game, like a roulette wheel, and you've got certain odds that it falls in double zero. And those risks are defined by parameters, mean, variance, or whatever, the probability distribution. But suppose you don't know what those parameters are. Imagine that you actually have a dice that you roll, and given the roll of that dice, you select which parameter is determined, what the probability is that it'll be double zero, what the probability that the dice are loaded instead of that. Now, but imagine you don't observe it. That's uncertainty. Now, that's one way to look at the difference between risk and uncertainty. Another way, less formal, but it often works out in practice uh, to be that way, is that risk refers to either risks that either um, don't change very much at all or change so rapidly that, you, that, they, that they have to act like you don't know what they are. So, for example, you could have, imagine we had in one case flipping a coin. It's always a probability of a half unless we go on some other planet where something changes. But you could also have a case, imagine we had a coin that flips randomly between 100% chance of heads and 100% chance of tails, but it did it every flip. We couldn't distinguish that either, so operationally we would make the two the same. It's just a probability of a half. Now, imagine there's some risk, though, that just gradually change over time. It could be a risk that, you know, the, macro, the growth of the economy, the productivity growth from 2% to 3% or from 2% to 1%, and we expect it to persist for some time. Now that's a kind of uncertainty because what the difference is operationally is this, that when you know what the risks are, basically first principles, oh, they're all equal, all the, you know, I randomize all the, the odds of opening up, a, of, of landing on a, this particular die or the space are the same, then you don't have to measure it. It doesn't change how you invest. 
If there's cases where you're uncertain about the risk, then you'll be learning from observation. And as the observation comes, you'll change your assessment. And the main point that I was making in my book is that most of the market risk we observe doesn't come from changes in fundamentals. It comes from changes in our perceptions based on the evidence that rolls in. And th this is in your book uh, that's more recently published, Pandora's, Pandora's Risk, correct? Yes. I know one of your favorite ways to describe the world is with mathematics. Um, I wonder if you could talk about one of your preferred ways to talk about um, these sorts of relationships you're discussing. Here, of course, I'm referring to rational turbulence, which I think is central to, to your Pandora's Risk okay. book. So in terms of looking at mathematics, I tend to like really simple models. And I do that for two reasons. One is I'm not sure I can really handle the really complicated models. And two, I'm not certain my, second, I'm not sure my readers can either because right. I'm not speaking to, you know, PhD students uh, typically. But also, I think that I get a joy out of seeing what simple models can achieve. And the simplest, and like all models, any model of risk or all that, we're making approximations to real world because real world is always really complicated. And the idea, and you see that very clearly, who is kind of my alter ego, Talib. Nassim Talib has written some brilliant books, I mean, at least inspired a, in, in his style of writing. And, but he talks about, as I do, about the really difficulty of forecasting the future. It's nearly unforecastable. But whereas I think he uses it more in a nihilistic way or to, to, to make fun of people who try it, I'm more saying, look, we have to look into the future to try to predict it. That's our job when we hold assets. Every time you buy or sell an asset or you price an asset, you're making an implicit prediction. Kent, uh, talk to me specifically about rational turbulence. Um, I know that you believe that it can bridge the divide between modern portfolio theory and behavioral uh, views of the market. Turbulence just means that the same equations that apply to a very smooth flow of running water that's a regular diffusion, if the water goes very fast, the molecules start to tumble over each other in ways that's very hard to predict. And the same with weather. Why is it that we can predict a, space, a single spacecraft going out in space and taking 20 years to get to a destination at some distant planet, or, or, and we can do that nearly perfectly, but we can't forecast the weather more than a few days? That's turbulence. What I showed was that the equations of rational learning are turbulent. What does that mean? It means that under rapid, under smooth learning, under normal learning, when things are calm, things behave like this nice, well-behaved, calm and filter, what we think of as rational. But if things change enough, if we get enough evidence of a sufficiently rapid change, then rapid learning causes turbulence where people will disagree. People who seem to agree will disagree. People who thought they knew things seem all confused. It will look like panic, but it's rational. That's so, rational turbulence. That's a pretty good explanation. I think I understand. What, what, so what are, the, like, what are the variables there? I know we're a, a bit off, but while you were speaking, you know, it occurred to me you know, that this, to, to explore with you, like, what are the variables there? Like, what would you observe to build a model? How would you use this? What's the application? Well, it's very hard. You know, I'm, I'm still struggling with that myself. You know, the truth is we're taking a model and we're talking about someone who's got a prior mindset and then observes something that makes them react in such and such way. And I can't observe what they observe or think the way they think. I right. can only look at things. We can think, look at things like market prices. But it turns out 
that if we have this theory, it implies certain testable hypotheses about how markets work. And let me give you a few, because that's where the exciting part comes. Let me say that in general, it shows that a lot of things that people view as proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that markets are irrational turn out to be consistent with rational learning. Perhaps the, most, the best known is the theory of irrational exuberance, or the observations of irrational exuberance, with, associated with Schiller. And the idea is this. The markets are trying to discount future prices. Future prices are future dividends. Future dividends are random, but they kind of even out over time. And when you discount them, basically, you should find that market price ought to be about as volatile as market dividends, or a bit less volatile than market dividends if there's some kind of mean reversion or something like that. And Schiller found, no, they're not. They're maybe half again as volatile. Well, it turns out that learning, rational learning, can explain the excess volatility. Right. You can also see other phenomena. You know, if we look at if we look at orthodox finance, it's well known that volatility itself isn't stable. It's volatile. Right. In fact, you might think of if you think of volatility as wiggle, you know, or if I can say it in a non-technical word, wriggle or wiggle, that the wriggle wiggles, and wiggles in a very wriggly way. And that's now the fancy name for that is called Garch behavior, generalized autoregressive conditional heteroscedasticity. It turns out that applying theory of, of rational learning. It does. It actually implies that that volatility should uh, exhibit Garch behavior. In fact, it even suggests a particular type of behavior that would approximate as E Garch, which Hamilton says is actually probably the empirically most favored form of Garch behavior. Ken, let me ask you a question. You've just explained this model, and you've done a brilliant job, I think, of pro providing analogies, you know, which allows people who may be new to the subject to immediately understand what you're talking about. How do you check the veracity of this model? And maybe somewhat tangentially uh, related to that question is, if there are any criticisms of this model, you know, what are they typically? So first question, how do you check the veracity, and it, what, what are the criticisms of this view? Well, on the veracity of the model, I think that the things I've just talked about, about irrational exuberance and about Garch behavior, are really a core part of the model, and, and in a sense a proof of the model. And um, there are many other behavior, like the changing aspects of the, the fact that the risk premium isn't constant, that, it, that it's fluctuating. There's actually a lot of work coming out now in very cutting-edge finance showing that that's true, that the risk, risk premium isn't constant. And these are consistent with the theory, whereas they tend to be a little more, um, they, they're a little harder for orthodox finance to explain. Having said that, orthodox finance is making some great strides, so I don't want to be you know, too critical of something. There's some brilliant work being done. Um, I think in terms of the application, which I think when you're talking about veracity, I've, I've used it some for tracking crises in the market. One of the ideas is that since turbulence comes up suddenly, you can't really predict it, like the weather, that when you had a big onslaught of turbulence, it would be negative for assets, for most assets, not safe havens, obviously. It would be negative for some and positive for others. But for, say, equities, for major beta assets, it would be negative. And the market couldn't really anticipate that, so when it got evidence, market prices would go down. And I actually have some models built on trying to, to short-term recognition of turbulence that were useful in the crisis of, uh, in 2008. They could actually uh, point out that when Lehman went down, I had models that were saying risk had gone up by a factor of three in the space of, um, of three weeks. And uh, yes, there was a big margin of error, but not that big. 
and it would tell you not necessarily to go short, but definitely at least to cut back your position drastically, which would have helped. And those same models said risk was receding in, uh, in late March of 2009 when personally I was scared to pieces. So the model did better than I did. Kent, thank you very much for being here today. If you would like more information uh, about Kent or any of our other uh, Take 15 interviews and other content, please check out www.cfainstitute.org. Thanks. Copyright 2013 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.